0: Okay, so if you have not been with us, we have started going through a a series here about the Great Commission, about how to fulfill the Great Commission. Two two weeks ago, we looked mainly at this passage, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, on the Great Commission, and then last week, we we got into some motives. Obey the Great Commission, and Dustin taught, because you love God, and uh, today, we're going to get into obey the Great Commission, because you love people. So we're going to start off with a <clears throat> kind of a review of the Great Commission. You see that on your sheet there. It should say, um, it should say, uh, review the Great Commission. I'm going to start that off by reading it. We're going to be in Matthew 28, verse 18. And I'll tell you what I want to do, what we did a uh, couple of weeks back, is I want us to stand, it's kind of symbolic, so I want us to stand up. But we're going to kind of read this together as a as symbolism we're locking on this is what we're going after okay so uh, most most of the people here seem like they have an esv so we'll read from the esv which means i need somebody to come up and i don't have the esv so somebody come up and help me out any esv you okay <clears throat> so if you go ahead and stand up we're going to read this together matthew 28 i'll lead us out <clears throat> we're going to start in verse 18 Okay, you can sit down. So that's what we looked at. And I want you to remember some things, okay? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them. Here's what I want you to remember. Is that we want to go after something in this church to where there is great, great clarity on this great commission. What is a great commission? How do we go after it? How do we obey it? I want there to be extreme clarity in this church that we are called to make disciples to turn people into disciples, to turn people into learning believers, to turn people into disciples of Jesus by preaching the gospel, teaching the Bible, and giving your life. And I taught that a couple weeks back from that passage. We wanna make disciples with a view towards the ends of the earth, with a view towards the nations, as the verse says, make disciples of all the nations from our nation, the nation you're in now, to the most unreached nation in the earth. From across the street to across the world. That's what we're talking about here. Get, lift up your eyes. Okay, lift up your eyes and get a vision here. As you, ga- as you look out across the earth, okay, from, from your neighborhood to the nation. As you look out across this earth, there's people who are lost and headed for hell. And we're talking about pulling those people in. Giving them the gospel of Jesus and pulling them into the kingdom. Pleading with them to be reconciled to God and people get saved. And when they're saved, you throw your arm around them and you teach them the word of God to help them to grow so that they become gospel proclaimers as well. And you look around and you see people who are saved and maybe people that are younger than you in the faith. And you think maybe I can help this person. So you throw your arm around them and you help them grow in Christ. That's what we're talking about. Make disciples. So today, when you hear me say uh, language like preach the gospel or make disciples Or win souls. Know that I've got this big picture in mind. This great commission. I've got the whole picture in mind when I use those phrases today. Uh, My prayer is for a move of the Spirit of God. That there would be a Holy Spirit zeal among this church for making disciples. And it would show itself in a whole bunch of fruit. When I say fruit, I mean multitudes saved. Disciples made. An army of, of gospel proclaimers raised up. Christ Jesus magnified in Jackson, magnified to the ends of the earth, magnified to the end of time. I'm talking about fruit for his glory. I'm praying for that. Are you praying that with me? I asked you a couple weeks ago to pray for that with me. Are you praying that with me? And I'm inviting you again. Pray pray with me that God would do this, okay? Let's take a second to pray now. Father, Thank You for letting us come together right now and open Your Word. God, I ask You that You would do a work among us, God, now and into the future, God, You would do a work by Your Spirit, just to move Your Spirit among us, God, to make us think, Lord, the way You think and to to be jealous for Your glory the way You're jealous for Your own glory. And God, I pray that You would raise up a church God that makes disciples and makes disciples of all the nations God give us fruit Lord teach us to boldly proclaim your word to proclaim your gospel and souls will be saved and God, I ask you now as we look at your word and as I teach through this God God, I pray that you would help me to do this in the ability that you supply God who, who's sufficient for these things and I'm not God, but you make me sufficient by your spirit. And I just ask you, I ask you for that gift now. God, I ask you for everyone here in your word to hear with eagerness. And God, I just pray that you would help us, help us this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. Uh, let me ask you this. So in making disciples, the direction we've been talking about going, our motives important? Are your motives, the reason you do something, is that important to God? Who cares about motives, right? Just do it. No, that's not right. So, we're talking about motives. Motives are very important to God. I'll give you two quick examples, very quick examples why motives are extremely important to God, or how, I, how do I know that? Matthew 23, Jesus tells us about these people, they're called Pharisees, and they travel land and sea to win converts. But why did they do it? What was their motive? And it said they were doing it to be seen by men. They did it. They wanted to look spiritual. So they're doing it to be seen by men. And if you you read Matthew 23, you see Jesus come against this hard. He even calls them hypocrites. Motives. Jesus hated this motive. Just to be seen by men. Another place in the Bible to show motives are important. Revelation chapter 2. You got this church. And they're laboring. It says they literally labor for his namesake. In Revelation chapter 2. They're laboring for his glory. And yet they missed it in the motive department. It says that they left their first love. Jesus says, this I have against you, you've left your first love. They missed loving Christ. They missed it in the motives. Do you understand what I'm saying? So So what I'm saying here is this is very important. We must be a people who obey the Great Commission. We have to. But we also must be a people that are fueled by all the right motives. Obeying the Great Commission fueled by all the right motives. What should our motives be? And you'll see that question on your sheet. What should our motives be? Turn to Matthew 22. There's going to be a quick review here. What should our motives be? Matthew 22. I'm going to start in verse 36 through verse 40. And you pick out two great motives for me. Verse 36 says this. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So these two these two commandments here. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are massive motives and they should be in your mind. There's many... Many motives to make disciples. This should be in your mind. But these are two huge ones that should be there, okay? Love God and love people. So obey the Great Commission because you love God. And obey the Great Commission that we just read together because you love people. All the other commandments, according to verse 40 that we just read, according to, according to that verse, all the other commandments hang off of these commandments. Love God and love people. So make disciples because you love God and because you love people. So we're talking about motive. Motive is that important? It's very important. Now, Dustin taught last week on the greatest of all motives: love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make disciples because you love God. He taught on that last week. He talked about uh, if you if you love God, then you want to obey Him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love him, you want to obey him and you want to please him. And he gave a command to make disciples. Therefore, you want to go after him. Okay, He taught some of that. He also taught that if you love him, you will desire to proclaim his glory and he will be so good in your sight that you can't help but proclaim his goodness and train other people to bask in his goodness. OK, and that's what you want to do if you. Love God. And if you love God, you'll desire that the lamb would receive the reward of his suffering. If you love God, that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue would worship the one that you love. You'll desire that. And therefore, you'll expend all your energies proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and making disciples. Okay, so let this motive that Dustin taught... The love of God if you haven't seen either one of these they're actually online right now if you need to know where that's at let me know but these both of these teachings are online but let what he taught let this motive loving God let it be let it just sit it needs to it needs to drive you to make disciples you need to sit in that motive um When you have this motive, love God, there's a God-centeredness that should overtake you, right? I'm making disciples and it's all about Him. I love Jesus. I love God. Okay, it's a God-centeredness that overtakes you and you should let that happen. His glory is the goal, is what we're talking about. Now today, we're going to dive into loving people. Okay, make disciples, as the title of the sheet says, make disciples because you love people. Now let me say something. I'm gonna put a warning here, okay? Beware. If you're passionate about this motive to love people and you neglect the motive to love God, you're gonna run into a lot of problems. So beware of that, okay? Let this motive to love people, let it rest in and let it be fueled by the motive to love God. If you don't, you're gonna run into two, into two major problems probably more than that, but let me give you two major problems you're going to run into if you don't let these two come together. Love God, and there's a second command like it, love your neighbors yourself. If you don't let these two uh, be right next, never to be separated, okay? If you don't do that, two major problems that are going to come about. One, you're going to take what I'm teaching today, and you may turn it into humanitarianism. It's man-centered, as if man's welfare is the ultimate aim or the ultimate goal. That's what you might do. So don't do that as we look at this today. God's glory is the ultimate goal. Second thing that you might do, if your ultimate concern is the welfare of man, if that's your ultimate concern, when you start thinking about the multitudes of people that reject Christ and spend eternity in hell, you will drive yourself mad. You need to be resting in, as you think about make disciples because you love people, you need to be resting in the rock of a love for a sovereign God and his glory be the end. So may these two motives never be separated in your mind, love God and love people. Now, two major points. So as we get into this, as we jump into uh, make disciples, preach the gospel, make disciples because you love people, As we get into that, I've got two major points. I just want to outline them to you from the beginning and then we'll jump into them, okay? First major point, you can see this at the bottom of your sheet there. First major point is preach the gospel and make disciples an act of love for people. Here's what I mean by that. Preaching the gospel, I want to prove this to you. Preaching the gospel and making disciples is, it is an act of love for people. I want you to see this unless you pit these two things against one another, you say, yeah, they preach the gospel, but you know, I love people. And I want want to tear that down. And I want you to see that preaching the gospel, making disciples is an act of love for people. We're going to dive into that. We're mainly going to dive into that from a story in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. That's mainly where we're going to look at that. Okay. Now, this should be a push. As we look at this point, that it is an act of love, This should be a push for every single person here. But especially for you. Anybody that's here that may say something like, well, I'm not going to preach the gospel. I'm just going to love them. Okay? This may be a major push for you. And I hope that it is. I encourage you to receive it with all readiness and search the scriptures, to see if what I'm saying is true. Second major point. Before you flip that sheet over. Second major point. Preach the gospel and make disciples fueled by love for people. I mean, just fueled. Pushed. By love for people. Here's what I mean. Let your gospel sharing and your disciple making be fueled by a real, genuine love for people. That's the direction we're going. We're mainly going to look at that out of Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. Uh, And It's important because it is possible. We just looked at this, right? It is possible for you to go after making disciples with all the wrong motives. Matthew 23, to be seen by men. Jesus says, Hypocrites. Right. So there is a way to do that. And I want to, I want to rub on some of that. Okay. We're going to dig into this from Romans nine. This should be a push for everybody that as you go after uh, gospel preaching and disciple making, as you go after that, if you do it fueled by love. It should be a push for everybody, but especially for you who are active. If you're active in gospel proclamation and disciple making, if you're active in that, or you're going after that, this should be a push on you. And I encourage you to receive it. Um, like a Berean with all eagerness. All right, now you can flip that sheet over and turn with me to Luke 16. This is where we're going. Luke 16. Now, what if I told you that I found a strategy? And I found a strategy that could take a man in hell and turn him into a passionate evangelist. What if I told you I had that strategy? Well, it's going to be right here in Luke 16, verse 19 through 31. So as we read it, I want you to look for it. What is the strategy? What was he talking about? How can a rebellious man in hell be turned into a passionate evangelist? Look at verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So you got two people presented to you here. You have a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen, expensive clothing. Okay, And it says he fared sumptuously every day, which means he lived in luxury. So you got this man living in luxury, Everything's fine. And then you got another man presented to you who's a beggar. He's a poor man. This man's name is Lazarus. And according to Scripture, he is full of sores. He's sick. Full of sores. He can't even lay himself at the rich man's gate. He has to be laid at the rich man's gate. And when he gets there, he's just desiring to be fed with crumbs that come from the rich man's table. And to make it worse and more, worse and more nasty, the dogs come and they lick his sores. It's the two people described to you. All right, go with me to verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So here you got both of these men presented to you. They both die. The poor man dies and something glorious happens. This poor man who's full of sores Gets, gets escorted by angels into heaven. It's awesome. And here's this rich man that says he dies and he was buried. And we're going to find out what happened to this rich man. And the rest of this story, we're going to read it together, is going to be this conversation between this rich man in hell. He's not rich anymore. And, and Abraham, okay? Let's look at it. Verse 23. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said... Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great goal fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So what's the strategy that can turn a rebellious man into somebody who is actually concerned for his brother's souls? You get taken to hell. And when you go to hell, you see the torments That are there and how terrible it is. And all of a sudden you have this man that could care less about his five brothers. And now he's saying, send somebody to tell him so they don't come to this place of torment. You go to hell. Two problems with that. I can't take you to hell. Obviously. Second problem is if you go to hell, it's too late. It doesn't matter if you become a passionate evangelist or concerned with souls. None of your prayers ever are answered in hell. In eternal torment so what can we do? Well, since I can't take you to experience hell, I want to use this passage and some other verses in the Bible to help you gain a reality of eternity. I want that to happen in this church. Like Daniel had visions. God just put visions right in front of his eyes. It was real to Daniel. He saw it. And I'm asking God to do that for this church, for us, that the reality of eternity of heaven, there's a heaven and there's a hell that this, this life is just like a vapor that appears for a short time, vanishes away. And then people take off into eternity. And I want that to sit on us heavy, very heavy. I think it's about two people per second die in this world. So it's two people per second gone, gone. As we're speaking, people are gone out of this earth, into eternity. And they're either going to eternal damnation or to eternal life. And I want that reality to sit on us heavy. Ravenhill, Leonard Ravenhill said this, you know, if God should stamp eternity on our eyeballs or even judgment on our eyeballs, I'm quite convinced we'd be a very, very different tribe of people. Think about it. Your actions... Do your actions line up? Do they measure up in light of the fact that people are going out of this world as you speak right now, as we speak right now, that people are going out of this world into eternity, into either eternal torment forever and ever or eternal life? How does that how does that mess with your actions? Do you feel the weight of that? And I'm praying for that because I don't think a person here could say, oh, yeah, yeah, I feel exactly the weight of that that I should feel. I know I don't. Okay. Okay. But but I want to move in that. I want to ask God that by his spirit to help us, that he would stamp eternity on our eyeballs. And that's what we're going after as we look at this passage. As the reality of eternity sets down on us heavy, how will this prove that gospel preaching and the disciple making is an act of love? Because that's what I'm talking about, right? This is an act of love. How will this prove this? Think about it. If you see someone and you know that they're in, they're all going to die. It's appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. We're all going to die. And you know that. And you know that what's coming after is either eternity in hell or eternity in heaven. If you know that, what would that make you want to do if you love them? Preach the gospel and make disciples. look back at verse 19 in fact let me let me just I just want to stop and pray that again okay as I'm thinking about this we're about we're about to look at something in this chapter that's going to I hope help us feel the weight of eternity okay and I just want to pray again that God would do that let's pray Father, we tend to be worried and distracted by so many things. We come to you, God, as your people. And we want to think like you think, God. Help us, Lord. Help us, God, to think rightly and not be distracted by the things of the world, but to think rightly about eternity. God, allow these this teaching to drop like dew. Let your word, God pierce us. God, kill all distractions. Kill all worries, Lord. And help us to see rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 19 through 22, okay, if you look at that section, what I want you to see in this section, okay, and and we just read it, that every person has a temporal state. You have a temporary state and you have an eternal state, okay? Every person has a temporal state. Verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate. They have two very different temporal states, correct? A rich man and a beggar, and eventually they're going to die. Both of them are going to die. Now, I'm going to get a show of hands in a minute, okay? So you better listen to the question. To obey Jesus' command to love people, should we go after caring for their temporal state or their eternal state? In other words, if we're going to obey Jesus' command to love your neighbors yourself, should we care for their temporal state, like with Lazarus, feed him, take care of him, take him to the doctor, whatever you do, take care of his temporal state, or... Should we care for people's eternal state? The gospel is what they need to, to, to know how they can even face God one day and not receive his wrath. Okay, so it's the gospel. It's disciple making. Which one do we need to go after to obey Jesus' command to love people? Raise your hand if you think we need to go after uh, the temporal state. We need to help and care for people in their temporal state. Raise your hand. Okay. Raise your hand if you think we need to care for the eternal state. Okay. J.R. Sharp back there. I saw that hand go up. He didn't put it down the whole time. He knew where I was going. Look, the answer is both, right? We need to look at people like Lazarus. Okay. We look at Lazarus and say, I want to care for them. I want to relieve their suffering. Okay. But, But listen, let this quote help you. This quote, I think, came from John Piper. Just let it serve you. Okay, let this serve you right here. You ready? We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. What do I mean by that? We care about all suffering. There's people suffering in this world, in this life, in this church, among you. Okay, there's people suffering. And and what does love say? Love says, I want to care for them. I want to care for that suffering, right? Okay, so we care for all suffering, especially eternal suffering. What does the especially mean? It means we give special care to eternal suffering in hell. Now, obviously, we can't do anything once they get there, right? But we can do something now. So, what do I mean by that? What is what, why would we give special concern, special care to eternal suffering? Because it's eternal. Suffering that is temporal is, 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 is terrible, but it's limited. But suffering that is eternal is immeasurably terrible, and it's unlimited. It goes on for all of eternity, according to the Scriptures. So we care for it. So every person without Christ is headed toward an eternity of suffering. And what does, what does love say? What does love say? I want to relieve that suffering. And you relieve it by the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they would turn to Christ. You turn people to Jesus and it relieves their eternal suffering. I want you to just think about it like this. Simple. This should be obvious. If somebody is hungry, they're about to die because they're starving. Okay. What would be an act of love toward that person? I think I heard feed them. It's obvious, right? Right. An act of love would be you feed them. Okay? If someone is thirsty, they're dying of thirst, what would be the obvious act of love toward that person? You give them drink, right? You give them something to drink. If somebody is is there, they have some kind of desperate illness. They're sick. They're desperately sick. What would be an obvious, it's obvious, what would be an obvious act of love? Care for them. Take care of them. Get them care somehow. Okay. And what about this? What if multitudes of people are headed toward an eternity in hell where they will burn forever and ever? What's the obvious act of love? And this is where we get all weird, right? We don't normally say it. People get all weird about this stuff. They get silly. And they say stuff like, we don't give the gospel away. We just be an example to them. Which is just as silly as saying, we don't feed the hungry guy. We just show him somebody well fed is silly, right? I want you to catch how silly that is. We must preach the gospel. We must make disciples and train those disciples to be gospel proclaimers as well. Now, temporal eternal states. Let's dig tighter into the eternal states, okay? Look at verse 22. Now we're gonna start off with where the beggar went. He ain't a beggar no more. He went to heaven. We're going to start there. But we're only, to, we're only going to spend a short time there. We're going to spend a lot more time on hell. And the reason is because that's what the passage does. And I just taught on heaven recently. Verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. It means Abraham's side. It means the place where Abraham is. So this is glorious. Here's this man that can't even carry himself to the rich man's gate. He's full of sores, the dogs,' nasty. They're licking his sores, and he dies. And guess what happens in the next moment. He's escorted by angels into heaven. Matthew 8:11 gives me an idea of what Abraham's bosom as my version says it or Abraham's side as some people say it means. Matthew 8, 11 says this, many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Heaven, this is the place where Christ is. And where we will dwell with we will dwell with Christ for all of eternity. Psalm 16 says fullness of joy at his right hand pleasures forevermore. And this is where this poor man who is not poor anymore got to go don't you want when you think about preach the gospel make disciples fulfill the great commission don't you want people to meet christ jesus and go to heaven and spend eternity with him now how did this beggar inherit heaven how did he inherit heaven is it because he deserved it no he was born in the sin and a rebellious man just like me and you Isaiah 64 6 says there says we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And this is how this beggar was. Did he get to heaven just because he was poor? Just because he was a beggar? No, just like the rich man didn't go to hell just because he was rich. So what's the issue here? And the issue is repentance. And you see that in verse 30 as that man in hell cries out. To Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers. He knows what his issue was and what was it in verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Repentance is the issue here. And this is awesome because this brings us right back to the Great Commission. Who are those like Lazarus who receive eternal life? Those who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, and therefore Jesus said in Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached in my name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This is an act of love. A great act of love to take hell-bound sinners and, and lead them to eternal joy at His right hand, ple- pleasures forevermore, to dwell with Christ. That's That's... A, an act of love to take them to the one who wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where they said there's no sorrow, no more death, no more curse, but fullness of joy. That's an act of love. So that's the poor man's eternity in heaven. But what about hell? And many of us, we don't like to talk about this. We live in a culture where we keep suffering as far away from us and away from our eyes as we can. Okay? So I encourage you to think about these things. and You need to let these things dwell. You don't need to go very long and not think about eternity. You can't do that. If you've been this week and eternity has never been on your mind at all, that's not good. So listen to me as we talk about these things. Look at verse 23. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus, in his bosom. It says that he is in torments. Did you hear it? That man is in torments in Hades. That word torment, it means torture. He's being tortured. Literally one, one definition, that, the definition that was given about this word is the, it's the, the rack, the torture rack, or an instrument of torture to divulge the truth out of someone. Imagine that torture to get the truth out of somebody. You ever thought of anything like that? And here's the deal. When you think about that, that has an end that on this earth, when somebody is tortured by some sort of torture instrument so that they'll tell the truth, that has an end. You know why? Because the torturer can either stop or they die and they get to feel the release of pain from death. But in hell, it is not so. It's torture that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Revelation chapter 9 verse 5 and 6 uses this same word, torment. And it says that those people, they will wish to die. They will want to die. They will desire death and will not have it. Revelation 14 verse 10 and 11 describes this word torment. And it describes this torment as the wrath of God being poured out for all of eternity. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Can you imagine the excruciating pain? Just a little bit that you can even take in of fire burning you for all of eternity. And that's what Revelation 14 describes it as. It says the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. You will never rest in hell. You'll never sigh have a sigh of relief it will never happen in hell it's torment forever and ever and ever revelation 20 verse 10 says they will be tormented day and night means no sleep forever many people say some people say what we're reading right now is a parable some people say it's a real historical account because they named him lazarus either way Wherever you fall on that, Jesus is driving the same point home. He wants you to see the reality of eternity and he's driving the same point home here. But listen to me, if this is a real historical account, this man, this rich man, you realize this, that whenever he died and he went to be in torments in Hades, you realize as we speak about him right now, he is being tortured in hell. This is eternal and it's real. Look at chapter 16, verse 24. Right here in chapter 16, verse 24. Then he cried. Because that's what you do in hell. You weep and you cry. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. Jesus wants you to see how terrible this is. Jesus talked often he was not afraid to speak of hell he spoke of it more than anyone else in the bible and he wants you to see the torment right here otherwise he would not have said it this way so imagine it get what he's saying if i take the tip of my finger and dip it in water and allow a drop of that water to hit your tongue does that relieve you even the slightest no it doesn't relieve you at all But a man in hell, it's so terrible that just to get a little dip of water, just a little drop of water on his tongue gives some sort of relief. And yet he's going to be denied even that. Even the slightest bit of relief will be be denied. Other places in Scripture, it calls hell. It calls it outer darkness, like Matthew 8, 12. Can you imagine outer darkness? An eternity away from the light of the world, Christ Jesus, the Savior. An eternity without Him. It's outer darkness. Pharaoh got just a little bitty taste of this. Okay, In in Exodus chapter 10, the ninth plague was a darkness that came over them. And it says it was a thick darkness that could be felt. And it about drove him mad to where he said, okay, Moses, you can have it. And he just got a three-day taste of it it's not even as serious as it is in hell. It's outer darkness. Other places in the scripture call it a furnace of fire. Matthew 13, 42, for example, uses the phrase a furnace of fire. Can you imagine this? Imagine, think about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. What would he do with those who, who came up against his authority? And Nebuchadnezzar would take those people and he would throw them into the fiery furnace. Can you imagine the excruciating pain of being in this fiery furnace before you die. Can you imagine that? Your skin's boiling and your tongue's melting in your mouth. And can you imagine the screams that come out of this fiery furnace? It's terrible. And yet, in the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, there's hope. You know what the hope is? Soon, my heart's going to stop and my body's going to shut down and all my senses are going to go away because I'm going to die. But in hell, there is no hope. It's like a fiery furnace and you burn forever and ever. It's pain and it never, ever ends. Matthew 25, Jesus calls it the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in Matthew 25 also, he says he calls it everlasting punishment. This is punishment that goes on for all of eternity. Many places in the scripture call it weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you realize that? Not only will you still, you'll be in hell and you still have your senses and you still have your emotions. It's weeping and wailing for all of eternity and even gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine grinding your teeth because the pain is so bad and does nothing to help? This is eternity in the lake of fire. If you really believe this and you have any amount, of love in your heart for people, you will fight tooth and nail to keep people from this horrid place. You'll fight with everything you got. And therefore, you'll strive to be a soul winner and a disciple maker. And that's what I'm calling us into. Listen to Proverbs twenty four eleven: Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Listen, if you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Rescue those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Has got to be the reaction of anybody that believes in the heaven and the hell. Look at verse 25. As we look at Abraham's response to this man, we're going to get some more thoughts about this terrible place. Verse 25. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. This man, when, when Abraham says, it's, it's, as, it's as if Abraham is saying, remember your life. Remember your life. You had your chance and you squandered it. Okay? And this man would have remembered the hand, the hand of God. The hand of mercy reached out to him and now it's yanked back for all of eternity. But he would have known that he had an opportunity. He would have known that. And this memory, you still have your memory in hell. And this memory, remember, he says to him, this memory will be your tormentor in hell for all of eternity. Thinking, what could have been if only I would have humbled myself and looked to the Lord Jesus? Matthew Henry said it like this, Son, remember. Remember, is what Abraham said to him. Remember, this is a cutting word. The memories of the damned souls will be their tormentors. Nothing will bring more oil to the flames of hell than sun. Remember, remember. Next, Abraham says this in verse 26. And besides all this. So he says, besides the fact that you earned it being there. He says, besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. He says, what's Abraham saying? He's saying it's fixed. It's done. You are never leaving that place. Leonard Ravenhill said it like this. Hell has no exits. No exits at all. And that's what Abraham's telling him. You cannot leave that place where you've gone. And this is one of the scariest things that I keep saying about hell is that it never ends. It's torment day and night, forever and ever. You can't even hope in hell for non-existence. You can't even hope that maybe you'll just dissolve into nothingness. You don't have that hope. Torment, day and night, forever and ever. A million years, a thousand years, a million years into eternal torment. You will wish that you could just dissolve into nothingness and you will not be able to. In a million years in, you will gaze into the future and you'll be absolutely depressed, weeping and wailing, knowing that you've only experienced a millisecond of what's to come. This is a terrible, terrible place. Jesus said it's the place where the fire can never be quenched. The fire will never be quenched. Listen to me. You do not want to go to this place and you don't want anybody else to go to this place. Jesus said this. He said in one place in the Scriptures that it would be more pleasurable. Let me just throw another layover how terrible this is. He said it would be more pleasurable for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and tossed into the ceiling to go to this place. you imagine it tied around your neck and the stone lifts you up by your throat and you drown. And Jesus says, hell hell is, is worse than that. That's better than hell. Another place He says, you would rather have your hand cut off and your foot cut off, or your eye plucked out, out, then experience this place. You do not want anybody to go to this place. What will you do to keep people from there? What will you do to show love to the multitudes who are stumbling to the slaughter? How will you love these people? The reality of eternity sat down this man in hell, and what was his response? He became concerned for his brothers. He said, please send Lazarus so that they don't come to this place of torment. So what would the reality of eternity do for born again believers like us? If you're here and you're saved, what should it do for you? When the reality of eternity that God gives you graciously before you go into eternity, what will it do to you? Jesus said that if you follow him, he will make you a fisher of men. If you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew chapter 4. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Maybe this is why Jesus spoke so often on hell. Let me give you a quick scenario. I I want to help with this. Think of hell. Think of eternal punishment, eternal torment, eternal flames. Think of it, okay? Now, here you stand, and let's say, I know it's not true, but let's say none of you are saved. Not a one of you. Every single one of you are headed toward hell. But here's what's awesome. you got a concern for your own soul. Can you imagine it? Nobody in this room. Nobody in this room is saved. And, but you got a concern for your soul. And then I come to you with the greatest news you have ever heard. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And I tell you something like this. That God came on a rescue mission to save you. Do you know that? That He actually took on humanity to Himself. He took on a body to save you. That the One who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, He who knew no sin became sin for us. And our sin was laid on Him. And He absorbed all of your hell. All the wrath of God and all the punishment that you were supposed to take. He took it onto Himself. And then He rose up out of the grave. And He ascended on high. And He's King of kings. And He's Lord of lords. All must bow to Him. And if you put your hope in Him, You come under His authority. He saves you from the wrath to come. What will that make you want to do? Rejoice. Praise God. Praise Jesus. Believe on Him. Submit to Him. Worship His holy name. Right? Okay, so now in this scenario, you're saved. You put your hope in Christ. And I turn to you and I say, listen, you're now ambassadors for Christ. As though, St. Corinthians 5, You're ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through you, be reconciled to God, to the world. Second Corinthians chapter five. What if I said that? What if I said you're an ambassador now? You have been entrusted with a gospel, as Paul said about himself. You've been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ to take it to a lost world who's headed toward eternal destruction. Now, what does that make you want to do? Plead with others. Spread this Gospel everywhere that you can and make disciples by raising up more Gospel spreaders so it goes further to the ends of the earth. Now, why am I telling you that? Because what I'm, what I'm teaching right now is so obvious that preaching the Gospel and making disciples is an act of love. It is so, so obvious. If you believe in a heaven and hell, you cannot think that preaching the Gospel and making disciples is not an act of love. Let me... Let me End this little point, And the second point will be a lot quicker. This point I'm going to end it with a very loving quote from Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Okay, second point here. Romans chapter 9, if you'll turn there, and this will be quick. I've already proven to you that there are ways to go after preaching the gospel and making disciples with bad motives. I've already proved that to you. Pharisees did it to be seen by men, and so on. Now I want to encourage you, you, as you guys turn, so you're about to turn, okay? Okay. And there's some of you here that are getting after it, man, you're you're preparing yourself and you want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and you want to make disciples and you're asking God, Lord, help me. I want to do this in in the power of your spirit and I want to encourage you right now to do it in love. Okay. Romans chapter nine, verse one through three. Look at Paul's example. Just think about his example here. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Verse 1, what is he saying? In verse 1, Paul is saying, Listen, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. In fact, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Why is he saying that? Because Paul is about to say something absolutely unbelievable. Look at verse 2. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Why does he have such great sorrow? Why does he have continual grief? How could the man that just... He was just on the Mount Everest of joy in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And he turns a corner in chapter 9 and says, I've got great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. What could do that? He knows that there's people that are accursed from Jesus and they're going to spend eternity in hell. And that brings Him continual grief. He's like the people in Psalm 119, verse 136, when they say, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. He loves these people. He cares for these people. You see it in His tears. Now, how much does he love these people? And you see it in verse three. And this is the unbelievable statement. Verse three, Paul says, I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. He's willing to plunge himself into hell that we just described for the sake of his brethren to be saved. You think he loves them? Now, I don't think this is a flippant metaphor here. Okay, we know that from verse one, right? He says, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth in Christ. This is not just a flippant metaphor or some sort of dramatic appeal. And it's not that he thinks that he can actually go to hell. He just said that in Romans 8. He says, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And then he even says in this verse, I could wish, I could wish. He knows that he can't go to hell, but he could wish that if he could. He would step off into hell for the sake of these people. And it's also not that Paul had unhealthy desires toward heaven. You know he desired heaven greatly. Philippians chapter 1, he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He longed for that, according to Philippians chapter 1. So what's the issue here? He just loved these people. You see that? That he is fueled. His gospel preaching and disciple making is fueled by weeping over lost souls. He loves these people. John MacArthur said it like this. this is, and he was speaking about this passage. He said this. It was exactly Paul's great love for the lost that made him such a powerful instrument in the hands of God. Evangelism has little effect if the evangelist has little love for the lost. So what an example that he gives us here. A gospel proclaimer, a disciple maker, fueled by love for the people that he wants to serve. And listen to me. Don't labor as a disciple maker because you think that makes you righteous in his sight. Christ has already purchased righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you're in Christ, he's purchased that already. Don't labor for that reason. And don't labor as a disciple maker just to be seen by men. We've already seen that error. Jesus hates that error matthew 23 labor as a gospel preacher and a disciple maker because you love people and you would do whatever it takes to snatch them out of an eternity in hell labor as a disciple maker be like paul this doesn't mean you don't speak the truth think about romans okay who's he speaking to in romans nine he's speaking to these Israelites, right well if you read romans chapter one through three what does he say He tells those people that they deserve the wrath of God. He tells them that. And He tells them they need Jesus as their Savior. And He even rebukes them, themselves, for thinking that they're saved just because they're a Jew. But right here, you see His tears over those people. You know what's going on in the background. He's weeping. He loves these people. And He desires that they be saved. We have got to. We must repent of selfishness. If we care more about our little worries and ourselves more than having this great concern about the eternal destination of souls, something is not right. We must repent of selfishness. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, get love for the souls of men. Then you'll not be whining about a dead dog or sick cat. You'll be delivered from petty worries if you are concerned about the souls of men. Get your soul, I love this part, get your soul full of a great grief and all your little griefs will pass away. Romans 9.3 says he'd plunge himself in hell. He says he'd stand, Romans 9.3, he'll stand at the brink of destruction and he'll step in because he loves these people and wants them to be saved. Does that seem too radical for you? And if that seems too radical, let me give you another example. Exodus 32.32, 32, Moses In Exodus 32, 32, Moses says this. He says, God, forgive them or or else blot me out of the book of life. Same heart. Loves these people. And I'll give you an even more compelling example. What about the one that didn't just say I would be accursed for these people, but he did become accursed for these people? Not just one that said I'll take hell for these people, but he did absorb hell for us. What about him? Listen to Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having Himself become a curse for us. He became a curse for us. Christ Jesus became a curse for you. So Paul's love and concern and weeping over these people, what is it? It's Christ's likeness. He says, I'd be a curse for these people just like my Savior became a curse for me this is the real issue Christ likeness to be like Jesus we must be like Jesus as we preach the gospel and as we make disciples and I don't mean the Jesus of this world that the world is made up that would never speak of hell and that would never tell anybody to repent I don't mean him I mean the Jesus of the Bible who preached the gospel who made disciples who loved people with with a love you can't imagine and let me give you a few examples John eleven five says this. Jesus loved, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He, he loved them. A little bit later in that same chapter of John eleven, Lazarus dies and Jesus begins to weep over him. And the men on the outside look and they say, "Man, look how much he loved him." Jesus loved these people that he served. John thirteen says says that Jesus loved his own who were in the world and he loved them till the end. Jesus loved them. And later in John chapter 13, he hits his knees and begins to wash these people's feet. He loved these people. John even called himself, can you imagine this? What would you call yourself? You're a disciple of Jesus. What would you call, what would you call yourself? And he called himself one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. He saw himself said, Jesus loved me. He knew that. Jesus loved people. John 15, 9. This would have been amazing. And I encourage you to receive it as if it is to you right now because it is. John 15, 9. Jesus looks his disciples right in the face in John 15, 9. He looks his disciples right in the face and this is what he says. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Jesus looks at him and says, I've loved you. I love you. You See that? He loved them. All through the all through the gospel says Jesus was moved with compassion. You should look up the word compassion. He's just moved with compassion and he healed the sick. He's moved with compassion and he multiplied the bread and the fish to feed those people. I'm calling us into it. May we be a people who aggressively pursue the great commission. And may we be a people that pursue it full of sincere, life giving love for people. And let me give you my application. And my application is extremely simple. Preach the gospel. Make it it. Here's the application. It's a quote from C.T. Studd. One quote. So listen to this quote. And then I'll pray and then we're going to actually go into a time of prayer together. Corporate prayer. Listen to C.T. Studd. He said this. Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven. Without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer Jesus Christ, let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news that our departure from of our departure from the field of battle. Like that, let's spend some time praying, uh, geared toward the things that we're talking about. That we would be a people that make Christ known, and that God would give us a lot of fruit for His glory. Let's pray. God, I do. I just ask you again, Lord, as I have already. I ask you again, and we join together, God, and we ask you that you would just let the reality of eternity set on us heavy. God, I pray for everything that numbs us, dulls us, distracts us. God, I pray that you would, you would, you would just free us from it, God. That we lay aside weights and sin that ensnare us. And God, just let the reality of eternity sit on us heavy, God. And I praise you, O Lord. I praise you, God, that you saved us from the wrath to come. God, you saved us from such a destruction. Lord Jesus, you took such a a wrath, such a destruction onto yourself. I praise you, God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And God, I pray that you make us a church, God, that Locks arms together. And proclaims you Lord Jesus. Preaches your gospel. Makes disciples God. Make us a church that does that for your glory. Please God. Give us fruit. Fill us with your spirit to proclaim your word. And give us fruit God. I pray the multitudes will be saved. I pray Lord for for an army of, of disciple makers to be raised up. Lord, be magnified in in this place. Be magnified to the ends of the earth. Be magnified to the end of time. Thank you, God.